this is Sherry. We met because she was my small group leader in kids' church from third to fifth grade. Hi, this is Addison, and I was fortunate to have Addison in third grade, uh, starting out through fifth grade in small group at kids' church. I'm part of Gen Z. And I'm part of the baby boomers. Tell me about someone who showed you how to live and love like Jesus when you were young. Well, I had a lot of good examples. My mom and dad definitely lived in love like Jesus. My dad worked long hours, but he always took time for us. And all the neighborhood kids would come over and visit and, and share and see what Mr. Shelby had to say for that day. <laughs> What's something you'd like to know more about my generation that could teach you? Um, maybe just like how growing up was for you, because like it was so, so different from how I grew up, like with all the technology and that stuff. And like, it's not a lot of connection sometimes. Just be nice to hear like how connected it was back then. What fears did you have to overcome before investing in my generation? Well, I didn't know technology quite as well <laughs> as your generation. <laughs> I don't know if I ever will, but I think I have a lot of young people that are willing to share with me and be patient with me. What's something you've seen me do that's an impact on you that might surprise me? Well, I don't know if it'll surprise you, but like how much you invest in people, like and like in us and like the girls now, asking them questions and talking to them about what's going on in their lives, like making sure you know about them, talking to them, making them feel welcome, that kind of thing. Wow, thank you so much. You will never know. God only knows what a blessing it is to be able to see people that you know grow up in the Lord and, and come to know the Lord and then serve and reach other people for the Lord. So on February 16th, I got one of those calls that none of us ever wanna get. Uh, this call was from my younger brother who had just received a call from the hospital in my hometown, Maysville, Kentucky, who said they had my father there and he was unconscious at the time. Uh, so my brother began uh, kind of putting some pieces together and what we learned that earlier that day as my dad was shopping at Kroger, uh, he had a brain aneurysm that ruptured. And uh, the nurse there in the ER was trying to get a hold of his family and her only instructions were to get here as quick as you can. So living four hours away, my wife and I threw an overnight bag together and we headed toward uh, my hometown. On the way, the medical team thought it'd be best to transfer for my dad from Maysville to UK Medical Center in Lexington, Kentucky. They thought once they got him there, maybe they could do surgery and stop the bleeding that was in his brain. Uh, by the time that my wife and I arrived, uh, the neo neurosurgeon had already conferred with my mom and my sister to say that there really wasn't anything else they could do for my father. And they just suggested us remove him from the respirator and allow him to pass. So they transitioned my dad to a hospice unit there at UK Medical Center. And on the 20th of February at 10.22 p.m., my dad took his last breath and transitioned into his eternal home. 
My dad was 81 years old when he died. Uh, he had been married and faithful to my mom for over 59 years. Uh, he had been serving as a pastor for oh, over 60 years. I mean, my dad was the largest and most significant spiritual influence in my life. Uh, my dad was a man who loved God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, all of his strength. My dad was a, a man of integrity. He was humble. He was servant-hearted. He was fun-loving. Uh, my dad never met a stranger. They were just people he had not yet met yet, if you know what I mean. He just loved people well. He loved serving people. He loved preaching. He loved going to hospitals and doing weddings and funerals. He loved just loving people. And um, my dad was the same man behind the pulpit as he was at the kitchen table. And that's a, an example and a legacy that I will benefit from hopefully the rest of my life. And uh, before I go any further, I just want to say thank you to you, my church family, for the numerous expressions of love and support and your prayers. They have truly been felt. I have really a deep sense of peace today. And that's because I knew how my dad felt about me. And I also know that he knew how I felt about him. And I know where he's at right now. And that's not because my dad was a perfect man, but it was because he loved and believed in Jesus with all of his heart. And he had embraced Jesus as his savior, the only hope he had of heaven. And that gives me extreme amount of comfort today. And I know I'm not alone in this grieving process. Even this week, many in our community have faced loss uh, with a loss of a teacher at the local high school. And I pray that the same comfort that fills my heart would fill yours today as we turn our, our gaze toward the one, the only hope that we have, our God, our Savior, and our friend. Last week, we kicked off a new sermon series we're calling Gen We. And it really revolves around a pretty staggering statistic that says that 50% of kids who grow up in a church just like Crossroads will abandon their faith after graduating high school. And research is very clear on the factors that would lead that to happen. And research is also very clear on what we can do to address that from not being the reality. And I just want you to know that the leadership of Crossroads Christian Church is not content with letting half of the kids who grow up here in this church walk away from their faith. I don't want that for my kids. I don't want that for your kids. I don't want that really for anybody. And so we wanna focus our attention on what we all can do to address this. And there are several things that we can do collectively. People from any generation, people of all ages, to see this reality change. In 2016, we had two people from Crossroads retire, Ken Eidelman and Jack Arney. They had both served faithfully here at the church, Jack for almost 30 years, Ken for about 10 years, and actually got to attend the, the retirement party. It was downtown, it was a great event. I got to be there because Jack is, is one of those guys who has a strong influence in my life, and we got to tell some funny stories about him and tell him thank you for some things. But also, Kyle Eidelman, Ken's son, was also there to uh, help roast his dead. And Kyle, during his comments, made a, a, a short story. He said, when I was a little kid, I used to go with my dad while he preached at all the different churches while he was a Bible college president. And he realized at a young age that his dad really only had two sermons. He just preached those sermons over and over and over wherever he went. He said, when I got older and became a preacher myself, I realized why. Because sermons take a lot of time and energy and a lot of preparation and it feels like a waste to just be able to preach them once. 
So he said, because this is not my first retirement party for my dad, I thought I would just pull out my notes from his previous retirement party and share those. He said that didn't feel appropriate. So he said, what I've done is I've gone ahead and written my dad's eulogy, and I'm going to share that tonight so that when that time comes, I'll be able to share that. I was really tempted this past week as I prepared what I thought God wanted me to say today to just pull out the eulogy that I shared about my dad just a couple weeks ago. Why? Well, because the one word that I could just find to sum up what my dad meant to me and to so many others was the word example. And today we really wanna start by thinking, how can we address this reality that, that we don't want to happen? And that is we don't want another generation to turn and walk away from their faith. So what's, what are the keys that we can put in place that might address that? And the first key we're gonna look at is this key of modeling, of living as an example for every generation, regardless of which generation we are in, so that we can all learn how to love and serve God. As a foundation for this entire series, we've been focusing on the instructions that Moses gave to the people of Israel recorded in Deuteronomy chapter six. I'd encourage you to turn in your Bible there with me. We kind of see this moment where Moses has just recalled the history of the Israelites. He's recited the covenant that God made with them. He's reminded the people how God delivered them from Egypt. And he also recited all the commands that God had given to them as instructions on how to live in a relationship with him. In chapter six, Moses gives these words to the people of Israel. Follow along with me in Deuteronomy chapter six. Moses says, these are the commands, decrees, and laws of the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord your God of your ancestors promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Moses reminded the people of the importance of obeying the commands that God had given them. He also spoke of the blessings they would receive if they did and reminded them of the repercussions if they didn't. These commands were given so that every person, regardless of what generation, would learn to fear the Lord. Now, this is not being scared of God. It's rather a reverent trust that includes a commitment to God, to his will, and to his word. To hear and obey was the expectation of every person. And God promised long life and that things would go well to all those who live this way. Now, that, that's not a wealth and health gospel, but true life and true blessing. The way that life was actually intended to be the moment that God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And the key to experiencing this kind of life is to love God wholly and to obey him completely with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus called this the greatest commandment because that's the core of living in relationship with God. 
God loves us wholly and completely. And we should respond to that type of love by loving him wholly and completely. Moses then instructs the people how to make sure that faith continues to the next generation. First, these commands must be in your hearts, Moses says, and then you must impress them on your children. That word impress is really translated to engrave, to wet or sharpen a knife, to teach incisively. It's how us parents remind our kids of what's really important, like have you brushed your teeth? Did you make your bed? Pick up your room, do your homework. Don't forget to practice your piano or your sport. Moses stresses that each generation has the responsibility to model and to teach how to have a relationship with God to the next generation, that that is the most important thing to teach. He gives clear instructions on how to do this. He says, talk about God's instructions when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down or when you get up. These are four opposing actions and when used together, that's a figure of speech called a mirrorism. It's taking the extremes that are actually opposite to show the totality or the completeness of what the behavior should be. And so Moses is saying like everything about your life, everything you do, everywhere you go, every activity, is an opportunity to teach the next generation how to love and serve God. He's saying, as you go, think about the things you do together. You ride in the car together. You eat meals together. You might do a, a project in your backyard together. Whatever activity you are doing with that other person, whether it be someone younger or someone older, those are golden opportunities to Pass on faith one to the other. This was not a commissioning for the local staff at a local church. It was not instructions given to Sunday school teachers or even the faculty of a Christian school, but rather a command for the whole community to take an active role in helping each other learn how to love and serve God. And the best way to do that is through modeling. That's why Moses starts by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. It must be, must be something that you are doing before you can help somebody else. It's the classic instructions that you and I hear when we get on an airplane. First, put on your oxygen mask before helping put on another passenger's oxygen mask. Moses instructed the people to tie these commands around your hands, around your forehead. It became the practice to create what's called a phylactery. Here's a picture of one. It's a little box that in, had inside of it little strips of paper that people had written the law of the Lord on. And they would write these and they'd put them in these phylacteries. They'd tie them on their head or they'd tie them on their wrist. It became like a competition to see who had the biggest or most beautiful phylactery. Talk about missing the point, right? God's point was not decoration, but devotion. Moses also said to write these laws on the door frames of your houses and on your walls. Hobby Lobby has made a, a killing on helping us do just that, right? I mean, if you need to write it on your wall, check out the local store, right? Every generation has the responsibility to live in this way, teaching the next generation how to love and serve God. Later in chapter six, Moses said these words. He says, in the future, 
When your son asks, what's the meaning of all these stipulations, decrees, and laws of the Lord our God has commanded you? Can you imagine a kid asking that question? Why, 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 right? Well, tell them, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us into and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we may always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we're careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he has commanded, that will be our righteousness. I hope you can see clearly that the responsibility for every generation to love and serve God and to teach the next generation how to love and serve God, it's an all-in sport. Regardless of our age, we are all necessary to model what it looks like to serve God because people are watching. Your spouse is watching. Your children are watching. Your parents are watching. Your students are watching. Your teachers are watching. Your fellow employees are watching. Your neighbors are watching. So. How do you and I model what it looks like to love and serve God? Well, I think first of all, we have to be a student of God's word. We have to know what the instructions are. The foundation for loving and serving God is scripture. It always has been and it always will be. Psalm 119.11, David says, I've hidden your word in my heart so that I will not sin against you. Paul tells Timothy, all scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God's word must be the foundation and the central focus of our life. If we want to be someone who loves God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength, and to be equipped to teach the next generation to do just that. God's word teaches us what is right and what is wrong. It guides us how to live a life that pleases God. It reveals God's heart and his ways to us. It instructs us how to live and to love like him. So we must make it a practice every day, throughout the day, to read and study God's word. Parents, I would encourage you to choose a time and a place where you can read God's word so that your children know that you're doing it. Find a time and a place where they can see you committed to the reading and studying of God's word. I think we can all take our Bible to school. We can take our Bible to work. It's actually legal. We can do that. And it's not a bad practice to indicate to others how important God's word is. God's word guides us as we make decisions. It brings us comfort as we walk through tough situations. It shapes our worldview. It directs how to treat other people. Don't just read it, digest it. Somebody described meditating on God's word like a cow chewing its could, just regurgitating it back up and over and over and over and letting that nourish your body. Sounds like a gross experience, but it's really helpful when you apply that and your commitment to read and study God's word. If you need some help in learning how to read the Bible or you wanna get started today, to develop that type of practice, I'd encourage you to check out the roadmap. It was designed to help you how to 
Be With God. And under the Be With God section, there are practical resources to help you, help any of us, learn how to read and study God's word and to make that a practice on a daily basis. We can't just read it or digest it. We also have to obey it. You're probably familiar with these words from James 1. James says this, don't merely just listen to the word and so deceive yourself, do what it says. Anyone who reads the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and then after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what it looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do so, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. That's an incredible promise. Take God at his word by reading and studying his word and obeying it. That will begin the process of you modeling what it looks like to love and serve God. Next, we have to be sincere in our faith. Research indicates what is one of the largest factors that would cause a kid who grew up in church to abandon their faith once they graduate high school. You know what it is? It's that they didn't see that faith making any difference in the way that their parents lived their life. Conviction, right? The number one indicator is not how great the youth ministry was, how wonderful the church program was, or what kind of experiences they had Other than they noticed that mom and dad might have gone to church, but that didn't make a lick of difference how they spent Monday through Saturday. I think that's why Beth Moore writes these words. She says, I believe that children are by nature very forgiving. I don't think children expect their parents to be perfect. I think they demand that their parents be real. Young Life, uh, a youth ministry that's made an incredible influence in many teens and many young people over its existence. They have a motto that says, you can't kid a kid. And I think that's true about people of all ages. Is this faith that we profess actually something we possess? Is this faith that we talk about on Sunday have anything to do with the way that we cheer on our team on Sunday afternoon or drive our car down the Lloyd Expressway on Monday morning or treat our boss or the people we're boss over on Monday through Friday? Does it have any influence on the things we watch on TV or the things we go to at the movies or the language that we use or any behavior other than how we spend that one precious hour on Sunday morning. If it doesn't, then our kids pick on that up at a really young age. The number one indicator, the number one factor that we could do to change that reality is for you and I to be sincere in our faith. Please let me say, I'm not talking about perfection. Perfection is not possible for anyone in this room. The only one that will be perfect ever was Jesus. But that doesn't let us off the hook. So many times we say, well, only Jesus is perfect, so I don't have to be. That's not the correlation. You can't be, but that doesn't mean you don't strive to be. Hypocrisy is also one of the major barriers for people to pursue a relationship with Christ because they see hypocrisy in lots of people's lives, the people who say they're Christians, but maybe don't live like it. And so we look at hypocrisy and say, well, what's the difference? Well, hypocrisy is is not believing that you're perfect, it's pretending to be perfect. And everybody knows that we're not. So what you and I can do 
to be an example to the generation before us as well as the generation behind us. To love and serve God is to be real in our faith. Sincerity in our walk with God means that we strive to live a life that pleases God by following his instructions, allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our lives daily. And when we sin and fall short, because we will, we take ownership for that. We seek repentance. We, we pursue forgiveness from God. And we allow the blood of Jesus to purify us from all unrighteousness. I love what the Hebrew writer said. He wrote these words. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through that curtain that is his body, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, because all those things are true, he says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Did he say perfect? No, he said sincere. And with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promises faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I don't have it verbatim, but someone shared a Facebook post with me this past week that asked like, why do we force our kids to go to church? We don't do that because we think they're perfect or it'll make them perfect. It's simply because we know they're not perfect. And when they're not We want them to know the love and forgiveness that God offers. We want them to have the resources and the the wherewithal to understand what God's word teaches about how to live for him and how to also embrace the grace and forgiveness that he offers. That's not just why we send our kids to church. That's why you and I show up here every week. Not because we're perfect, but because we want to be perfect. Sincerity goes a long way. I could tell you hundreds of stories about my dad that would just give little windows into the man that he was, give, give you a picture of just a man who really truly was sincere in his faith. One that I've shared here before and one that I shared at his funeral was about a time where he was responsible to watch me as he went to play at a church softball game. My mom gave him instructions, Philip, or Bruce watched Philip, and as soon as we got to the softball game, my dad got really active in the game, and he lost focus on who I, where I was, and he had told me not to go down to a creek that was near the ball fields, and you know, as a five or six-year-old, the first thing I did was went right to the creek. Lost track of all time until I heard him call my name, and when I met him at the car, he had really quick instructions, get in the car. It was a quiet ride 30 minutes back to our home that evening. When we got home, he said, I need to see you in my bedroom. I knew what that meant. I was gonna get spanked. And after a brief conversation with my mom, he came in with the paddle, spanked me. I was guilty as charged. I deserved the punishment. But then my dad handed me the paddle. And he said, you know, Philip, you weren't the only one who disobeyed tonight. I was supposed to watch you and I got too wrapped up into the softball game and I forgot I was responsible for you. And so I'm going to hand you the paddle and I want you to spank me to remind me that I need to be obedient. You see, sometimes it's our failures and us owning up to those failures that might teach our kids the most. I'd encourage you in your pursuit of perfection to let your kids and others Know that you're not perfect, but you're trying to be. And with the hope of the Holy Spirit, hopefully they'll see more of Jesus in you on a regular basis. If we want to model what it looks like to love and serve God, 
to others, then I think we need to be intentional in helping them learn. You see, modeling is not passive. It's very purposeful. Its goal is to pass on what we know to the next person. Modeling takes the time to explain and teach so that the other person can learn. One of the best ways to educate someone is to demonstrate. Parents, we have a responsibility to teach our children how to live and serve God. Proverbs 22, six reads, train a child in the way that he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. People ask me all the time, is this a promise or is this a principle? What happens when I teach my kid how to love and serve God, but something goes wrong, they don't choose to follow. And now they're in their 30s and they're making all kinds of choices that break my heart. Is that a promise or a principle? Well, I think it's a command. The command is to parents. Your responsibility as parents is to train a child in the way of the Lord. We have to remember 1 Corinthians 13, 3 says, some plant, some water, but God produces the growth. Every person is responsible and accountable for their own choices. And what that means, parents, is you're not off the hook to not train your kids in the way of the Lord. And you should keep training, keep praying, keep modeling. There's no timetable given in that scripture. When they are old, is that old at 30 or old at 80? We don't know. That's God's work. What he's asked and commanded us to do as parents is to model and to train and to teach. And I think it's bigger than just parents, but before I go to another group of people, I want you to know that we're here to equip you as parents. That's why we have this family discipleship seminar set up for you. There's two options that you can choose from. Hopefully it's convenient for your schedule. I would make it convenient for your schedule, meaning put it in place of anything else you might be thinking of doing. You can find the dates, you can register, all that information about this family discipleship workshop at cccgo.com forward slash info. Just click on the parenting workshop. But as I got ahead of myself and said, this is not just for parents, this is for all of us. We're all part of the community of faith and we all have the responsibility to model for each other, to train and teach each other how to love and serve God. That's why Moses said, here, O Israel, all of you are participants in this. And so that theme continues. Paul tells Titus some instructions on how the spiritual family has this responsibility to teach others how to love and serve God. Listen what Titus, what, uh, what Paul says to Titus. He says, you must teach what's appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith and love and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what's good. Then they can urge younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husband so that no one may malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them in an example by doing what's good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about you. That's a responsibility the older has to the younger, the younger has to the older. And then 
Paul tells Titus these words. He says, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show them that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teachings about God, our Savior, attractive. Feels a little culturally insensitive, Paul's words to Titus, but don't miss their bigger point. We all have an opportunity to model this kind of lifestyle, this kind of living to anybody, even those who have authority over us. And then Paul makes this kind of wrap-up statement. He says, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what's good. This, then, are the things that you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority and don't let anyone despise you. We all are addressed in that. Do you see how every one of us is to be involved in modeling and teaching what it looks like to love and serve God? Even Titus. Titus was most likely a young man, like Timothy, to which Paul said these words, don't let anyone despise you because of your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. I wanna be very clear that this series that we're in It's not about the old people teaching the young people and that's where it stops, that the young people are just the recipients. No, they are the participants as well. We've already seen this morning that the young can lead the old. We were led in worship by people much younger than most of us in this room. They're currently teaching other young people back in our kids' area. If you showed up here tonight in our building, this building is filled with people who can teach you how to love and pursue God. They have a purity about them that shares an example to those who are much older than them. And we need them and they need us. That's why we call this series Gen We. Many of you might be familiar with one of our former elders named Larry Grippenstraw. Larry taught uh, high school for many years at Harrison High School. But it wasn't until later in his adult life that actually Larry made a decision to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of his life. And it was because of some of the high school students in his classes throughout the early 70s who very intentionally prayed for Larry every day and shared the gospel with Larry. One afternoon as Larry was helping some students who needed some algebra help in his classroom, something almost miraculous happened. There were former students and current students who all converged in Larry's classroom that afternoon with a very deliberate intent to make sure that if Larry died that night, he would get to go to heaven because he knew Jesus as Savior. And Larry would tell you it was that moment where he began to surrender his life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Not only did Larry come to faith in Christ, but eventually his wife, Becky, came to faith in Christ. And a few years later, they were blessed with their only son, and he came to faith in Christ. Larry continued to invest in generation after generation in his public school room, but also here at this congregation as an elder. Their son, Zach, is currently a worship leader at a church in Ohio, and the legacy goes on and on and on because of a couple adolescents 
who had the courage to share their faith with their high school math teacher. If you and I are gonna model what it means to love and serve God, we've gotta be students of God's word. We have to be sincere in our faith. We have to be intentional in how we teach others. And I think we also have to be active in serving together. There's something powerful that happens when we serve. There's an old adage that says, you can't grow without serving and you can't serve without growing. It's a powerful experience as well as a powerful example. And so parents, if your children are going to grow to love and serve God, then they have to see that you are loving and serving God. Where do they currently see you extending yourself on behalf of someone else or in service to God and others? Did you take seriously the challenge that Andrew Bondurant asked us last week to take? That was to pray to God and ask us, how is God prompting us to engage in raising up the next generation or to share faith with the O's around us? How are you deliberately doing that? That'll have a lot of impact, a lot of modeling on those who are watching. Kids, you're not off the hook. If you're in this room right now, how are you currently serving others like your parents or your classmates or your neighbors and friends as an expression of your faith? The deepest relationships that I have to this day in my life come from people that I have served with or have watched serving. My wife has never looked more attractive to me than when I've seen her serving in Kenya or when I hear her tell stories of how she is living out her faith as she is a developmental therapist here in this community. I've never been more proud of my daughter who is studying pharmacy not to push pills or make money, but to serve people that she'll have an opportunity to help in some tangible way. I love seeing my son Kate as squirrely as he could be helping serving donuts in the cafe or greeting people at the front door. And my daughter, Kendall, I'm just blessed to watch her mature in her faith, to be serving in tangible ways like committing an hour or two a day to serve in the special education classroom at Castle High School. And I have never been more blessed than to serve shoulder to shoulder with what I would consider lifelong friends, people who I see your faces sitting out here today. And to know that 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 friendship has gone even deeper because we have extended ourselves in serving God and others. Last week, we communicated that one initiative of this entire series is to help make sure that the current generation, meaning our kids and youth, have everything that they need so that they can learn how to love and serve God. And what we need is a whole army of people who would rise up to make sure that they have the best opportunity as far as this church can, can muster to make sure that they learn how to love and serve God. We communicated that we have about 175 needs every week to make sure that happens, volunteer needs. And we had about 85 of those filled, which my Kentucky math means that we need about 90 more to uh, make that happen. We had five people last week raise their hand and say, I'll commit to doing that. And I wanna say thank you. And now I wanna talk to the rest of you because it's gonna take all of us. I'm not offering guilt this morning, just a prompt to say, is God calling you? Are you a parent who wants to make sure your kids love and serve God well beyond the day they walk across the stage of high school? Are you a grandparent that wants to make sure your grandkids don't 
miss out on how to love and serve God? Are you a young person who has a lot of energy and a lot of rapport with people who are closer to your age that you could invest in teaching them how to love and serve God? Any age, any demographic, all of us are needed. I made my commitment this past week. I can't go back there every Sunday, right? I have a, another responsibility, but I've already committed to helping with Camp Alive this summer because it takes all of us. I'm asking you to follow my example. I'm asking you to join with me. I'm so grateful that I had an example in my father of how to love and serve God. And at his visitation, it seemed like I turned from saying thanks for coming to one person, I turned to the next. It was my second grade Sunday school teacher. I'm like, Barbara Mingi, I'm so sorry. I made your life awful when I was in second grade. Thank you for coming and paying your respects to my dad. I introduced her to my wife. I turned back, it's my second grade teacher from school, Miss Donovan, I'm sorry for making your life miserable. That, the gratitude I had that was, was large. But it seemed like, over and over and over, I found myself thinking, this is such a small world. Here I am surrounded by all these people who've made such a huge influence in my life. And somebody corrected me. They said, it's not a small world, it's a big family. And that's what I would say to us here today. It takes all of us, every generation, Gen we. It takes all of us. We all have a role to play in helping another person love and serve God, and I'm asking you to do your part. Let's pray. God, thank you for all of those who have poured into us. I would say all of us are here today because of you and someone with skin on who showed us how to love and serve God. They may not even know the influence that they've had on us, but we're grateful. And God, help us to be good stewards with that, to pass that on to someone else, someone older than us, someone our same age, somebody younger than us. It really doesn't matter. What it matters is that we are part of this family of God. It matters that we fulfill our responsibility by loving and serving you, being an example to those around us. And I, God, I pray that you'd bear fruit from that. To your glory, I pray, God. Amen.